Good evening, my name's Katrina Lambert. I'm one of the pastoral uh, team members here at New Hope and it's lovely to see you tonight. Lovely to see so many guests and visitors here for some fantastic baptisms. Really wonderful. Well, we're in the middle of a series called Bring the Joy. A number of years ago, I went on a mission trip to Thailand. During the first team, I was part, uh, the first week of that trip, I was part of a team teaching English to a bunch of theological students at, um, at a seminary, at a Bible college just in the foothills of northern Thailand. During the second week, most of the team went home, but three of us went on up into the far north of Thailand into the Golden Triangle, where we were visiting with a small organization that aims to stop the trafficking of young girls into Thailand's sex industry. They do prevention work with migrant families who, because of poverty and deception, are at risk of their young daughters being trafficked for as little as $50. Just let that sink in for a minute. For $50, which is probably less than the cost of the shoes on your feet tonight, you can buy a 14-year-old girl forever. We traveled around the northernmost part of the Golden Triangle. We went to these incredibly tiny villages high up in the hillsides. They were actually really just clusters of houses that were made of poles with tarpaulins wrapped around them to keep out the torrential tropical rain. Now, I'd seen poverty before as I've traveled around the world but really it was mostly at what I would call a polite distance. It was mostly in public, and there was a pretty clear route back to my comfortable accommodation each night. But here we pushed back those tarpaulins, we went inside, and we sat down on dirt floors in the one room that constituted a family's home, and we drank tea, and we shared meals. And the thing that undid me in those moments wasn't the poverty and the desperation of those families that I met. It was their joy. It was their joy. In the midst of circumstances that I've got to tell you I would find mostly intolerable, here were a bunch of people who laughed and joked and sang and danced and they seemed more alive to the wonder of the world than many of the people that I know. The joyousness that I discovered there just didn't fit the picture that I had of people who existed on less than a dollar a day. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that everyone was jumping for joy or I'm certainly not saying that poverty produces joy. But there was this undeniable joyous quality about these people's lives that totally cut through all of the assumptions that I had. They left me wondering, did I really even know what true joy was? Did I even think that joy was important in my life? Actually, when I look back, I have to confess that I mostly thought joy was pretty lame, like I associated it with the embarrassing stuff that my parents used to do, like dancing too enthusiastically at weddings. I used to have this boss that was just deeply, irritatingly joyful, have you ever met a person like that? He was really senior in the company and had this huge amount of responsibility. 
This is a position that I thought could engender a little bit of seriousness, but this guy was a complete clown, totally making jokes all the time. I remember one day we lost this really big, important client, and he said to me, don't worry, Katrina, they're not going to take away your birthday. <laughs> it wasn't until much later when I read the work of an African-American theologian named Willie James Jennings that I began to understand what it was that I encountered in that hillside in Thailand. Joy, Jennings says, is an act of resistance against the forces of despair. Joy isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. Joy is a work. It's a work. Something you must choose and choose again if the work of joy is going to become a state of joy that's going to well up to be a joyful life. And the nature of the joy of work is that it's a form of resistance pushing against despair and death. You see, joy resists all of the ways in which uh, death wants to lead us towards this kind of non-life, robbing us of life, making death the final word. And death isn't really the end of life, is it? I mean, it is literally, but stick with me. Jennings is talking about death as all of these different forms, like violence and war and debt and dispossession and anxiety and depression all the ways in which life can be literally strangled out of us until we feel like life's simply not worth living. So it makes sense, I think, that the exemplary joymakers aren't actually the people who live in comfort and who want for nothing. The exemplary joymakers are the ones who have no land, who have no resources and have limited opportunities. They are the ones for whom from this really limited place, which is rich in despair, do the work of joy from the inside. From inside the narrow places of oppression that are literally squeezing the life out of them. These joy workers, they take their pain and they make it productive by using their bodies as sites of joyous opposition bringing humanity in the midst of dehumanizing systems as they claim life through laughter and joy and dancing and singing and unleashing creativity until it's a raucous act of resistance against the powers and principalities of despair that would render them invisible and voiceless and hopeless. What I saw so clearly in those hills in Thailand was just how our culture has blinded us to the fact that the joy of work is important work that each one of us must do. That we need to do our own joy work. You see, our culture, I think, has convinced us that we can largely outsource the work of joy. That we can outsource it to shopping centers, or party hire places, or exotic holidays, or our own Instagram feeds. But Joy is something that you can't buy. It's not something you can ingest. It's not something that you can curate. If you only you've got the right clothes or the right friends or the right drugs or the right bank balance. You see, in our culture, we've sold joy as some kind of junk food, some junk food version of joy. 
like it's just all a sugar rush with no nutrients. Certainly nothing that has enough substance, enough backbone to sustain us in the midst of the inevitable suffering that each one of us is gonna face in our lives. Looking back at those families in Northern Thailand, what I see now so clearly is the strength and the courage that these people had despite their circumstances to choose joy, to practice life-giving joy in the midst of it all. Joy is a work. Joy is a conscious bodily act of resistance against the forces of death and despair. The other thing I learned from Willie Jenkins is that joy isn't a free-floating emotion just kind of wandering around in the air. Joy is deeply grounded. Joy is fundamentally tied to particular places, to particular spaces and geographies, which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, I'm sure that each one of you here tonight could name the places which you find joyful. And sometimes these spaces of joy are actually to be found in deeply unexpected places. I've just spent the last 12 years living in a part of Melbourne that has an unusually high number of hipster cafes. When it comes to cafes, I have to confess that I'm a little bit of a snob. I just don't go to places like McDonald's. Well, I didn't go to places like McDonald's until one of member of my congregation came and asked me to meet him for a coffee there. I immediately thought of five separate places that we could go to in within walking vicinity where there were much nicer, non-plastic kind of chairs and a, a much nicer ambience, but you know, I went with his suggestion. And I met him there many times over the following year. And to my surprise, what I learnt about McDonald's is that it's actually a place of joy. And I'm not talking about Happy Meals or Ronald McDonald. If you walk into any McDonald's early in the morning, what you're gonna find is a bunch of retired people coming together in the corner to drink coffee and to chat and to eat. In the evening, you're gonna see families that gather together for a special celebration or just the occasion of being able to get some time together in the midst of a really busy work of week, a week of work. You're gonna find student groups gathered together to study book clubs, local sporting events. There's probably that homeless person that you walk past all the time at the shops there. There's that couple who comes in every Thursday night because that's where they have their date night. They're all there, aren't they? Because the food is inexpensive because the bathrooms are mostly clean, because there's a space to sit, and actually the staff don't bug you if you need to sit there for a really long time, and because there's free Wi-Fi. You don't need me to tell you just how fast food restaurants are actually not great for the ecology or for parts of the economy, and they're certainly not great in terms of calories. But I wonder, I wonder if part of the secret of the endurance of these kinds of places is that they provide a place for people to meet, for people to go and share stories, to eat together, away from the pressure of unpaid bills, away from the disappointment of unrealized dreams, away from their soul-crushing work or the empty loneliness that they go home to from that place. 
I think McDonald's is almost like a kind of bright red and yellow chapel where there's no barrier to entry, no things stopping anyone from belonging, where the sense of social hierarchy is melted away, kind of like the cheese on your cheeseburger, where you can rock up in whatever you happen to be wearing that day and you can order four apple pies with a Big Mac chaser and like no one's gonna look at you like you're crazy. Perhaps sitting underneath those golden arches is one of the few places left in our culture that fosters conversation across all the things that divide us. A place of neutrality where we can go beyond the tribes that we've separated ourselves into and we can just be who we are in our pajamas without pretense, people together experiencing the joy of fries and our shared humanity. Most of the Christians I know always seem to come back from a holiday in the United States, having been to one of those fabulous African-American churches. I think they do this, of course, because the quality of the worship in those places is just so amazing. It's the emotional singing, it's the, the shouting out. Can I get an amen, by the way? as opposed to what we experience here, which we're all nicely facing the front and listening attentively, apart from the people who are on their phones, but that's okay. (laughs) What is it about those places? Historically, black churches have been a physical place where a group of people who have been burdened by racism could gather together to shout out their joy as a statement against, uh, of a statement of resistance against all the things that were pressing upon them. The church has been for African-American people a place where they could reclaim their identity and their humanity and find hope and love in God, a God who brings justice before whom every knee will bow, who will wipe away every single tear. So it's no surprise, I think, that out of this physical space, this physical space of joy in the black church, grew another kind of space, a sonic space. Out of the tradition of the spirituals of the black church was birthed the blues, a musical form that originated in the deep south around the 1870s, pioneered by African-American singers like Muddy Waters and B.B. King. These people who sang these extraordinary, emotional, deep, soulful laments, yearning for more, in the midst of the harsh realities of their lives. And of course, the blues influenced the development of rock and roll, which gave us those great protest songs for the 60s, shout out to all the boomers in the room, and of course, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which flowed over into the emergence of hip-hop in the urban ghetto in New York in the Bronx in the 1970s, a bunch of young men raging against police brutality and incarceration. And each of these joyous spaces, these joyous sonic spaces, have meant so much to people across the world. Generations of music lovers, especially young people seeking to overcome the limits of their lives, to bring change and to find hope for the future. You might have caught a recent article by Mike Frost, who wrote, there hasn't been a single revolution in history that wasn't sung into existence. You see, social change has a soundtrack, doesn't it? 
and that soundtrack transforms joyous human voices, lifting them up until their songs of freedom. We've seen it again this year, haven't we, in Hong Kong with the student protests. There are millions of people on the streets protesting the control of communist China and they've taken up the, the, the hymn, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord, as their anthem of freedom. What I'm trying to suggest to you tonight is that perhaps rapping along with Tupac and Kendrick Lamar or dancing to Gloria Gaynor's anthem, I Will Survive, awkwardly at a wedding, or even participating in some sort of Christian karaoke on a Sunday night at New Hope Baptist Church, as awkward as that all might look from the outside, perhaps actually it just might be the birthplace of a radical and powerful kind of joy that has the power to beat back the forces of death and despair in your life that you too are invited to take up and do your own work of joy. Not because you're a bunch of clowns that are just out there looking for laughs, but because actually you truly understand just how serious the work of joy is in confronting the powers of death and despair. Because you understand that the work of joy is deeply connected to the work of bringing justice. Joy is about bringing justice. In Hebrews 12.2, we read this. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Why did Jesus do what he did? What was motivating him to keep going in the face of such rigorous and persistent opposition? What was it exactly that enabled Jesus to drag that cross down that road and allow those soldier, soldiers to hang him on it? It was for the sake of joy. For the sake of joy that Jesus did that. And what joy was it that Jesus had in mind? Well, it was the joy of living out the mission, the purpose that God had entrusted him to. The joy that God's spirit was upon him and that he'd anointed him to bring this good news of great joy to everyone that was oppressed. The joy of Jesus' work in binding up the hearts of those people who were brokenhearted. The joy of Jesus' proclamation of liberty to the captives and release of everyone who was a prisoner of death and despair. This was the joy this was the joy for whose sake Jesus was willing to do his own body work, his own work with his body in dying so that death might be defeated in all of its forms. And you and I, those of us that are followers of Jesus, are called to follow on in this work, to, to, to lay down our bodies on the line for the sake of God's reign of justice coming to earth just as it is in heaven. See, Jesus was saying something vitally important to the disciples when he says to them, I said this to you so that my joy might be in you. Is Jesus' joy in you? Is it really in you? Have you heard the good news? That Jesus came not just to make you clean, 
not just to deal with your sin, but he actually came to throw open the gates of heaven and to invite everyone into God's kingdom of peace and justice. Are you longing for God's kingdom? Are you seeking to create spaces for God's justice in your own life, in the relationships that you have? My prayer tonight is that you would know this joy of Jesus, this thing that sustained him even in the midst of his darkness days. And that one day, this joy, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that you would know that Jesus' way of justice and mercy and compassion will ultimately prevail over death's deadening ways, death's ways of violence and exploitation and oppression and fear everywhere across the globe. So take hold of this joy. Work out this joy in your bodies. Savor it as you eat your fries with your friends or sing it out or dance it out or wrap it out in the midst of wherever you are this week. And let this joy be a deep and profound sign that like these women who were baptized tonight, you have sought to align your lives with the life-giving power of Jesus Christ not the powers of death and despair. That that's what's propelling your life, the joy of Jesus. Let's pray. Loving God, tonight our souls cry out for freedom. Freedom for ourselves and freedom for those across the world that are under the thumb and the boot of oppression and exploitation. Lord, our hearts long tonight to see your reign of love and justice come Won't you come, Lord Jesus, and establish that reign as we, your church, work towards your justice. Use us, Lord, in the places that you have placed us. Teach us your way of love and peace and wholeness tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.